on behalf of my family and our church family at Faith Bible here in South Orange County, we want to just share our thanksgiving and joy for what God has done here over the last seven years and for the fruitful work that has been going on. I appreciate your teaching pastor. I love your teaching pastor. He's a a dear friend. And as we labor and partner for the gospel, I love this man because he has been a model to me. As he said, we first met about ten years ago, and I actually prodded him to ditch those classes, so don't blame him. But we went to Trinity Seminary, though, right? And uh, James has been a man of... uh, biblical conviction, and he's a faithful leader. He has um, a spirit-empowered preaching ministry. In fact, he's one of my all-time favorite preachers. I like to go onto your website and download his sermons, and I'll listen to them on my iPod. And uh, I'm ministered by the Word through him. He models to me a, a deep and abiding love for Christ, his heart as a shepherd, his marriage and family life, plus... And let me not forget this, James has mad game. (laughs) Yes, James Shin has game. We are privileged to meet once a month and we play basketball for about two to three hours and uh, there have been many a game and I will testify to this where James has literally carried his team on his shoulders and led us to victory. So not only should you be thankful for the gifts that God has given to you, but you should also be thankful that God has blessed your pastor with superior athletic skills and with mad game because that resonates with my heart as a pastor and someone who loves sports. There is a tight bond. You know, I've spent time with non-athletic pastors and I have to tell you, you go out and you know you'll be throwing a football around or you watch them shooting baskets and you just want to say, you know, let's just go back inside and let, let's read Greek or let's study, you know, Grudem because this isn't going to work today. So it is good to have a brother that uh, I'm grateful for and a shepherd for such a time as this and a church that God has raised up to be used for His glory. So let's pray as we dive into this morning and look at what God would share with all of us. Our Father, we thank You so much, God, for the testimony that has been given this morning for Your glory. God, I thank You so much that it's not unto us, not unto us, but to Thy name be all glory. Father, that You are the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. You are the only God. And... All that belongs to You, Lord, is honor and glory forever and ever. pray, Father, that You would continue, Lord, to do a mighty work here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Father, You have promised to build Your church and that nothing would prevail against it. And we thank You, Father, for the way that You have built Cornerstone in these seven years. I pray, Father, that You would go before them for many years and many generations to come, Lord, reaching various parts of this world, both locally and globally. And Father, that You would raise up a heart of people, God, who would be solely devoted to Christ and His supremacy. We pray, Father, that You would, through Your Word this morning, grip our hearts and enable us, Lord, to understand more from 
the Apostle Paul. God, that we would want to be like him. That we would want to embody the affections that were rooted in his soul. And so we pray, God, for these things, for your name's sake. In your name, amen. As I thought and prayed about what to share with you on your seventh anniversary, it was somewhat difficult for me because to me, your church is a model church. And I say that not to elevate you or any man, but really to elevate the work that God has done in these seven years. I mean, you've only been around for seven years and as I've heard of what God has done here, there's a maturity that's well beyond your age as a seven-year-old church. It's a testimony of the powerful work of God's Spirit and His grace in your midst. And there's a DNA that has been built into the life of this body. A DNA that is producing fruit. Right things that a church ought to have. There's a centrality to the glory of God in all of life and all of ministry. There's a deep commitment to the Holy Word of God. There is a love for the brethren and there's shepherding that runs deep, that affects lives. It's just not on the surface, but there's accountability at the practical level of, of life and ministry. There's a passion for the lost, not only locally, but globally. For a young church, I marvel at the fact that you have sent out missionaries and you support missionaries. You have missionaries lined up, ready to go into various parts of the world and your budget reflects that. So what does a pastor like myself say to a church like you? Good job. Well done. Um, the number seven is a perfect number. I mean, what do you say to a church that is growing and vibrant? Well, it dawned on me that I really have nothing to say. But the Apostle Paul knew of a church like Cornerstone. And in no way am I comparing myself to Paul, but I make the comparison to the church that he wrote to. In fact, Paul wrote to this church. I think it was a church that if you looked at all the churches that Paul had the privilege of establishing in that time frame, that this would be one of his favorite churches. It was probably a church that was near and dear to his own heart. It was a faithful body of believers. They gave sacrificially. They loved each other dearly. They were growing spiritually. And God's hand was evident upon this body of believers. In fact, in this letter, Paul wrote to them, there weren't any significant issues. Not like the Corinthians. I mean, you talk about a dysfunctional church. The Corinthian church would have been the poster child for that denomination. There weren't any apparent issues that Paul needed to address. And Paul's heart for this church was really one of thanksgiving and joy. And so, he didn't really have a stern agenda. He didn't have this, this thing that he wanted to bring to the forefront of their minds that was urgent. Not like Galatia, not like Corinth. So, even though... He didn't have something major to address to them. He did know that they were in the process of maturing and growing. That they were still a far ways off from the ultimate aim of not only every church, but every single believer here on this planet. And this morning I'd like for us to explore a text written to a church that was healthy and growing and vibrant, which I believe reflects what God is doing here at Cornerstone. If you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 3. 
And let me begin reading from verse 7. Paul says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, in order that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here in this text, we get a a window into the heart of Paul. A glimpse to see what really mattered most to this man of God. And what was it that made Paul tick? Quite simply, this text reveals his heart and what made Paul tick, what drove him in life and ministry was simply this all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what drives you in your ministry? What drives you in your life? Paul would have simply answered, it is Christ. It is the supremacy of Christ. And here in verses 12 to 14, this passage teaches us that the central aim of life, the central goal of life, and not only this earthly life, but men and women, eternity, the aim of eternity, not only for those who are in heaven, but also for those who are in hell, is summed up in the ultimate prize who is Christ. The Christian life And the church's mission should all be submitted underneath this banner of the supremacy of Christ. And in this passage, Paul explains this not by way of command. And so I come to you this morning not with an imperative, but really just by way of indicative. By looking at Paul's life. And as he was a model for all of us and for our churches that we would seek to emulate His life and the life that He had and lived. Let me ask you men and women, what is the one thing, if you could boil down your life, if you could see your time and your thoughts and your checkbook and your free time and your energy and your thought life, what is the one thing that pulls all of that together? Or to put it another way, what is it that you're living for? What is the one thing in your heart that drives you, that gets you up every morning? What is it? What is the highest desire? What is the ultimate passion of your life? Maybe you can relate to an overachiever like Jim Bristow of Indiana. You probably haven't heard of Jim Bristow, but one day he told his wife he wanted to build a cannon 
that would shoot a pumpkin a mile. And so he built this cannon powered by a 700-gallon air tank, had a 30-foot-long barrel. It looked like a mobile anti-aircraft gun. And when this man fires this cannon, a 10-pound pumpkin is hit with 11,000 pounds of force and the pumpkin projectile leaves the muzzle about 900 miles an hour and it flies this pumpkin one mile. During the test, the cannon fired a pumpkin through the rear of a Pontiac. Now let me tell you, that's something to live for, isn't it? Boy, to, to invest your life to fly a pumpkin a mile, wow! That really grips your heart, doesn't it? Or maybe life is like living out the board game Monopoly. Remember Monopoly? Any of you remember the Monopoly or is it just us older folks? Some of you are like, Monopoly? What's that? It's a popular board game and the goal was to be the person who had the most, the most money, the most property, the most railroads, the most utilities. And maybe you can relate to the game of Monopoly that your life is aimed to just collecting as much as you can from this world. Only to finish the game and to put it away in the box. And that's reality, isn't it? That at the end of this life, all the stuff of this temporal world gets put away. And we're left with simply our relationship with Christ. You see, men and women, this passage teaches us that the central aim of life and eternity is summed up in the ultimate prize. And from Paul's life, let's see how we can get it. Let's see how Paul strove with all of his might to attain to this type of heart where the supremacy of Christ drove everything in his life. Well, look with me at the first point that we find in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. I think what we hear in Paul's words is a humility, a humble perspective that Paul had about himself and about his relationship with Christ. Now, before we move forward in this text, we've got to answer the question that we don't know yet in verse 12. What is the it that Paul hasn't obtained to yet? He says, not that I have already obtained it, or obtained, or have already become perfect. What is it that Paul wanted to obtain? I believe the answer is found in the context. In verse 8, Paul says more than that. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. You want to know what Paul wanted more than anything else in this life? He says there, I want to know Christ better. That's what he's saying. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't become perfect. I'm not there yet to this place in my spiritual life where I really know Christ fully. And so what does it mean to know Christ? I think it involves three things real quickly. It involves, first of all, a learning of Christ, a true learning of Christ, a knowledge that is based on the Bible. It's biblical truth that leads us to know Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. That's how we get to know Christ. And then once we have this knowledge, you know what it does? It ought to produce a love for Christ. 
that knowledge is like light that shines on Christ so that it makes Christ look great. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves not only one another, but loves God, is born of God and knows God. We know that knowledge, biblical knowledge, is not merely rational, it's not merely cognitive, it's not merely factual. It's not this emotionless type of feeling-free knowledge like Dr. Spock from Star Trek. No, it has emotion and it produces love. And this love then ought to lead to greater likeness to Christ. Learning needs to loving, which ultimately ought to produce a likeness to Christ. John 14.15, Jesus said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Loving Christ will lead to a life that is moving towards greater conformity to Christ. That's what it means to know Christ. It means to know about Him through the Word of God. And out of that, it produces a love for God, a love for the supremacy of Christ. And out of that love is born this radical obedience to be like Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, hey, I'm not there yet, I haven't already obtained it, he's going back to this understanding, this idea of knowing Christ in a full way. And he knows that one day when he dies, he will know Christ fully. At that point when he stands before Jesus Christ and he sheds the sinful flesh, and there he has knowledge of Christ, a true knowledge of Christ, then he'll know him, but then, even then, he won't really know Christ. Because we will spend all of eternity, men and women, when we get to heaven, we're not just going to be perfect and full of all the knowledge of God. No. We will spend the rest of eternity understanding more and more and more about the infinite complexities of the glories of God. And forever, we will sit at the feet of Christ gleaning more of this knowledge and taking more insight and being marveled all the more forever and ever because God is an infinite God. His knowledge, you can't exhaust His knowledge. It's infinite. What struck me about this passage is the fact that Paul, when he saw his relationship with Christ, He didn't think to himself, hey, you know, I'm the great missionary. I'm the great Apostle Paul. Look at all of these churches that God used me to plant. I am a mature missionary. He didn't have that perspective. When Paul saw his relationship with Christ, he was deeply humbled in his heart. I mean, think about this. Here was a man who I believe for three years after his conversion was taken away to Arabia and there, over that time period, Christ Himself taught Paul. That's what we get from Galatians 1 and 2. Here was a man who went to seminary, not at the Master Seminary, but he was taught personally by Christ. Not only that, He was a man chosen by God, as he reflects in Ephesians 3. He knew he was chosen by God to establish the early church throughout the Roman Empire. He was a man who had a vision where he was kind of teleported into the highest heaven. 
and he comes back to earth and he says, I can't even speak the things that I heard. And here he looks at his relationship with Christ and he thinks to himself, you know what? I still have a long ways to go. I'm not there yet. He had what the Puritans called a holy dissatisfaction with his spirituality. Yes, he was content in Christ. But on the other hand, there was this yearning to know Christ all the more. Men and women, as you look at another year of your faith, as you look at your future, is there a holy dissatisfaction with where you're at right now? Have you become satisfied as a successful church. So thankful for what Bob shared. Yes, praise God for the seven years. But look at the future with anticipation and expectation for what God will do next. And don't grow content. And don't grow enamored with what God has done in the past. Allow those things by His grace to continually humble your heart, not only corporately, but also individually. You know, there's lots of reasons why we fail to see our need for growth. Sin keeps us from growing. Pride blinds us from seeing our true needs. Biblical knowledge can puff us up and make us believe that knowledge is enough. Apathy can creep in and cause our hearts to grow cold. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I've been saved for 10, 15 years. And you're resting on the fact that God has saved you for that long. Or maybe it's in comparing yourself to others. Thinking, well, you know, I'm not like that other guy. Or I'm not like that other girl that I know who's a believer. And that elevates us and it robs us of our humility before Christ. I mean, how do you explain Paul's humble self-perspective near the end of his life? This morning we read in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. I mean, Paul explained that to us. How do you come to the end of your life when he wrote 1 Timothy? It was around early 60. He probably died several years later. How, Paul, do you come at the end of your life after almost 30 years of ministry? And how in the world do you say, I am the chief of sinners? How do you say that, Paul? We would never say that you're the chief of sinners. Well, Paul could say that. Because he wasn't comparing himself to other believers at the time. But he looked at Christ and he saw the infinite glories of Christ. And he saw himself, a former blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a violent aggressor. He realized the mercy of God in his life. And he was so overwhelmed by the grace of God, all he could say was, God, I'm a sinner. He was like that publican. Remember that publican in Luke? I forget what chapter, but... It's in Luke. Does anyone remember? 16? 18? 16? Do I hear 17? <laughs> and here was this man, and this pious Pharisee comes before God. He, he's looking at the publican, and he says, You know, I'm so glad I'm not like him. 
The publican's not even willing to look up into heaven. He's just sitting there beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this man walked away justified. Men and women, we have to have a humble perspective about who we are if we're truly going to reach for the prize. There's a little space there in your notes. I just encourage you as you reflect upon the Word of God today, maybe in the quietness of this afternoon, ask Him, God, where do you want me to grow? God, this year, how can I become more like Christ? I know the three areas of my life that I want to work on this year. Specifically, I want God to kill pride in my life. I see pride so, so often. It creeps up in the most subtle ways. It shows itself and I'm not even aware of it. And that's how blinded I am to my pride. Last night as we're having our family devotions and I'm speaking with my kids and we read Proverbs 11 too. It talks about pride bringing dishonor and I... I just confessed to my children. I said, children, you hold me accountable. When you see your father proud, you just call me to it. I don't care the fact you're my children. You know me. You show me my pride. Because I hate it. I don't want pride. And if you have to come to me, you come with respect. Don't say, Daddy. (laughs) You You big jerk. What are you doing? But show me. Help me. I want to grow in the area of worldliness. Men and women, we live in such a a luxurious society right here in the Disneyland of America. And the trappings of worldliness I feel in my heart tug at me every day like Lot whose soul was tormented every single day. I don't want to buy into worldliness. I don't want to fall away from Christ and abandon the faith. And I want to grow so that I fear God and not men. Oh, I find in my heart such a people-pleasing attitude where I'm ashamed in my evangelism and I'm a coward. And I want to grow. And I'm asking God, God, help me to grow. Where do you want God to change you this year? For His glory. Well, notice how willing Paul was to fight for this passion. Look at point number two. Paul's hard thought pressing. Verses 12 to 13. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Paul's realization that he wasn't perfect and that he didn't know Christ the way that he should know Him in the way that He could know Him, wasn't cause for Paul to throw in the towel. I know sometimes that we as believers can get locked into this spiritual fatalism where maybe you've entered into a dry season of spiritual life and you're not growing and your heart's growing colder day after day and all of a sudden you're thinking, you know what, it's not worth it, I can't do this. This is impossible to be like Jesus. I've got all of these temptations and sins running through my mind. I struggle every day with my sin, with my flesh. And God is calling me to know Him. Pretty soon we get discouraged and we get depressed and begin to think it's not worth it. It's not worth it. 
Or maybe some of you are looking at the way that your parents raised you and you're saying, I've got these long-standing habits. I've been struggling with this sin issue, this habit for 20 years, for 30 years. And if only my parents had treated me differently or trained me in a different way, I wouldn't be like the person I am. You see, men and women, Paul never thought that way. Even though Paul didn't know Christ, it didn't call him, it didn't cause him to throw in the towel. On, on the opposite, you know what it did? It caused him to press on even more. He wasn't going to quit. The word there, press on, means to follow in haste, to strive after something with intense effort, to move quickly and energetically towards some objective. It was used in athletics of the runner who ran with all of his might, all of his strength towards the finish line. Let me ask you men and women, what is the one thing you are straining for? Tomorrow when you get up, why do you get up? Is it simply because you have to go to work? Is it simply because you have to go to school? Or is it because God has given you life and breath tomorrow because His mercies are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. You get to live another day seeking Christ. Whether you are a pastor, whether you are a seminary student, whether you have a secular occupation, it doesn't matter. Is that what you're pressing for? For Paul, this was his passion. And when Paul saw the value of knowing Christ, nothing compared to this back in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. The Greek word there, skubalon, literally a graphic word, human excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. Men and women, you know what the Bible saying? The Bible saying, this is if your life is not centered on Christ alone, if your life is not Christ centered, you are chasing after rubbish. I don't know many people who, if we're going to go with Paul's illustration here, who use the restroom and sit there and gaze inside the toilet bowl and think to themselves, wow, look at that. This, this, is, this is marvelous. You know, anyone who would do that would need some kind of help. Spiritually, psychologically, physically. And Paul uses this term to show the idiocy of putting anything above Christ. That's how blinded we can be as believers. Where we can look at Christ who is surpassing value and we could put things like money above Christ. The all-consuming desire, the American dream to pursue an easy, comfortable life in the suburbs and to allow that to become more important than Christ. Or the enticing pleasures of the world the fun and the vacations and, and the things and the gadgets or the subtle idolatry of even good things like family or ministry or to be satisfied by changing circumstances or relationships 
Paul said this, you know what? Christ is surpassing value. And because He is surpassing value, everything else that challenges Christ, to me, is rubbish. You throw it away. You flush it down the toilet. There's absolutely no benefit to having that in my life. In fact, if I keep it around, it will only produce ill effects and disease. Men and women, this is so important because it's not only a belittling of Christ when we place other things above Him. It not only belittles Christ, but men and women, it's a dangerous way to live. Let me say this, that those who belittle Christ by constantly, consistently placing other things, people, things, pleasures above Jesus are living in danger. We've got to get rid of this notion of American Christianity that we can have everything in the church and all of these great blessings. And at the same time, because we live in America, that we can have one foot in the world and we can live like materialists. That, to me, is not a biblical notion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, he said this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. And notice this. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Many people try to translate that word disqualified, adakimas, to mean, oh, he's just going to lose some reward in heaven. Yeah, he didn't have self-control. He kind of blew it here. He just, you know, lost his passion for Jesus. He didn't run the race hard. He kind of jogged his way to the finish line, enjoying the latter years of his life, and he's just going to lose some reward. Is that really what that word means? If you read on in the context of chapter 10, Paul then gives an illustration of Israel, apostate Israel, that God laid low in the wilderness. Why? Because they did not run the race to win. That, that is a heavy truth. Because what God is saying there and elsewhere in Scripture is that if you're not pressing on towards the prize, if you're not fighting for the supremacy of Christ in your life, you may not be saved. You may not be saved. Or you are saved and there's just a bunch of idolatry that's got to be removed out of the heart. Jesus said it, this way, in Matthew 5, 29-30, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What's he saying there? Is that the way we fight temptation? Is that how we conquer lust? We gouge out our eye? Does that help us overcome lust? No, not really. He's not calling us to literally tear out an eye. But what he is saying is that the heart of someone who is truly saved would be willing to go to any limit in order to secure that salvation. In order to know Christ. It's a willingness of a Christian to do whatever it takes to learn and love and live like Christ. Men and women... 
pressing on and straining to know Christ is not optional for us. It's not optional. Don't think that. Don't think, you know what? I I don't have to get that serious about Jesus. You know, I'll just, you know, kind of live this nominal life. I'll just be this lukewarm believer and I'll just kind of go to the church and I'll just kind of hide out and, you know, and my salvation secure not on your life. Don't be deceived. If you're not pressing after Christ, you may not be saved. There's got to be a heart desire in every believer that says, Christ, I want more of Christ. I desire to know Christ. That's the heart of a believer. John Piper says, Saving faith is an ongoing preference for Christ over all other values. The pursuit of Christ is the evidence of genuine faith in Christ as our treasure. Therefore, we must go hard after Christ in order to confirm our justification. It's not saying you have to earn your justification, but going hard after Christ confirms the fact that we are saved. The Navy SEALs, we have a, tonight we have a lieutenant colonel in the Marines who's going to be going to Iraq for a year. He's got a family of six kids, one on the way. And, uh, Having him at the church has been a blessing, especially for all of our boys, because our boys run up to Lieutenant Colonel Bob Baird after the service, and they want to hear all these stories. You know, they want to drive the tank, and they want to fire the M16, and, and uh, we're talking about military training, and we talked about the Navy SEALs. They're the elite counter-terrorist arm of the Navy And they have one of the most strenuous mentally and physically demanding training regiments in the world. During the fourth week of training, they go through what is called Hell Week. It's designed as the ultimate test of one's physical and mental motivation while in the first phase. It basically proves who really wants to be a SEAL and who doesn't. Eighty percent of the recruits drop out in that fourth week. They spend five and a half solid days and nights facing constant training evolutions. 132 hours of continuous physical labor. Think about that. Five and a half days of constant exercise. And guess what? You're not sleeping eight hours a night. The total sleep for the entire week amounts to less than four hours. They run for miles. They do thousands of sit-ups, thousands of push-ups. They carry a 300-pound log over their heads and they run up and down the beach. A Zodiac boat up and down the beach. They lie in shorts in their t-shirt in the middle of the night on a metal pier and the instructors spray them with water. They have what is called surf torture where after being cold at night, they bring them out in the morning and they link arms in the surf and they're just pounded wave after wave after wave with the instructors on the megaphone yelling, come on in, quit. You don't want that. You could have a nice warm hotel room right now. You don't want to be a SEAL, do you? Come on in, guys. Trainees are constantly in motion, constantly cold, hungry, wet. Mud covers everything. Their uniforms, hands, faces. Sand burns their eyes. It chafes their skin raw. 
They consume up to 7,000 calories a day and they still end up losing weight. Men and women, I think if a soldier serving in this earthly army can endure that much for the honor of becoming a seal, how much more should a soldier in God's army be willing to endure and press on not to get a badge of honor on your uniform, but so that we might get to know Christ? Do you have that kind of eagerness? Do you have that kind of passion, that desire that will undercut whatever in your life so that you can know Christ? Well, Paul doesn't leave us just with that truth, but real quickly, two practical points. He says, forgetting what lies behind in verse 13. The runner, when he sprints to the finish line, he's not looking over his shoulder to look back. That's the picture. He's racing ahead. And Paul, I believe, chose to deliberately forget those things in his life that might distract his present pursuit of knowing Christ. That's what he chose to forget. He mentions that earlier in chapter 3. He was Jewish. It wasn't a bad thing. But at that time, his Jewishness was a source of pride. And so he says, I want to forget that. I don't want anything in my past that would hinder my present pursuit of Christ. And maybe some of you, as you look at your past, you're haunted by your past. You're looking at things that produce guilt and shame and bad theology or bad decisions, maybe individually, maybe even corporately. Paul says, you know what helps me to pursue the prize? It's not looking back. I'm not going to look back. That's just going to discourage my heart. And you know what, men and women? The great truth about this is that all of our past mistakes, all of our past failures, Paul being a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, a persecutor of the church, all of that has now been placed under the foot of the cross. Romans 8 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ has taken all of those sins, all of those mistakes, and He's dropped His gavel and He said, not guilty. Not guilty. All those mistakes you've made yesterday, all the sins that you committed this past week, you know what? Right now, they can be wiped clean. God can say, you know what? Not guilty. And you can walk and pursue Christ. And notice the second thing that he did. He not only stopped looking back. And, and again, let me just clarify. Sometimes looking back is okay. Revelation 2 says, remember where you have fallen. Sometimes looking back encourages us in our present pursuit of Christ. But there are certain things that we deliberately can let go of. And not only should we not look back, but notice he reached forward to what lies ahead. Verse 13. He strained with all of his might. Similar to that verb, press on. He's not looking back. He's just looking at the tape, wanting to finish the race. And in order to do that, he exerted great energy and intensity to become more and more like Christ. Men and women, you don't just grow and become like Jesus Christ overnight, right? In fact, you don't do it passively either. You don't just get a MacArthur study Bible and come to Cornerstone Bible Church and all of a sudden, five years from now, you're like Jesus. And all you've done is just been passive. No, Paul had this approach where he says, I work out my faith 
with fear and trembling. In other words, Paul strove with all of his might, and yet at the same time, it says, knowing that God is at work to will to work for His good pleasure. We strive with all of our might, knowing that even in that striving, God, it's by God's grace that's enabling us to pursue His Son. You can't just sit there. You can't sit there and say, well, you know, I just want to grow to be a spiritual giant, and yet you're not willing to pay the sacrifices in order to get there. You look at all the heroes of the faith. Read the missionary biographies. You know what's common amongst them all? All the church fathers, all of these men from Luther to Spurgeon to Jim Elliot to Hudson Taylor, what was common to all of them was this willingness to forgo anything in this life that would hinder their pursuit of Christ. And they put in the time and the energy and they pressed on. Not in their own strength, but under the strength of God. They even sacrificed sleep. They sacrificed free time. They sacrificed hobbies in order to gain Christ. A.W. Tozer writes this, The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after God. Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heart of the desire after God. They mourned for Him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for Him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found Him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking Later on, he says, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Men and women, what are we willing to lay down in order to gain Christ? I think God wants to strip away all rivals of our love for His Son's supremacy. That's the Christian life. That's sanctification. God is just peeling one finger at a time from our white-knuckled, tight-fisted grip on sin and selfishness and pride. And God is in the process of sanctifying us. He's saying, hey, you know what? You can give that to me. You let go of that. You don't need that. That's rubbish. That's going to hurt you. And God wants to get us to a point where it's not Christ plus something but it's Christ alone. Christ alone. That we might say with Paul at the end of 2 Timothy, where he's writing to his young protege, and he says in this most tender, tender passage, verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me. I mean, here's Paul at the end of his life in a dungeon, and all of his comrades have left. They're ashamed of Paul. All have deserted. And then verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That We can have nothing, but we can have Christ and therefore have everything. Let me leave you with just a little illustration that so sums up what I think Paul has embodied here. You all have heard of Hudson Taylor. In his book, Spiritual Secret, he writes of his training before in England as he was waiting to go to China. 
And as he was awaiting to go to China, he wanted to test his faith to see, you know what, if I can't trust God here, there's no way that I'm going to be able to trust God overseas. If I can't grow in faith and walk in faith here, where there's life is comfortable and everything is here that I would ever need, how in the world am I going to trust God over China? So what he began to do is he began to work for a doctor and he began to pray, God, I'm not going to ask my doctor to pay me for my, for my services. God, you remind him. And so he began to pray. And in one stretch of time, the doctor had forgotten and all he had was one little coin in his pocket. That's all he had left. He knew that he had rent due. He also knew that when he got home that night, Sunday evening, there was one meal left for dinner and there was one meal left for breakfast and that's all he had. Those two meals and this coin in his pocket. And listen to what he says. That Sunday was a very happy one. As usual, my heart was full and brimming over with blessing. After attending divine service in the morning, my afternoons and evenings were taken up with gospel work in the various lodging houses I was accustomed to visit in the poorest part of the town. At such times, it almost seemed to me as if heaven were begun below and that all that could be looked for was an enlargement of one's capacity for joy, not a truer filling than I possessed. After concluding my last service about 10 o'clock that night, a poor man asked me to go and pray with his wife, saying that she was dying. I readily agreed and on the way asked him why he had not sent for the priest, as his accent told me that he was Irish. He had done so, he said, but the priest refused to come without a payment of 18 pence, which the man did not possess as the family was starving. It immediately occurred to my mind that all the money I had in the world was the solitary half-crown and that it was in one coin. Moreover, while the basin of water gruel I usually took for supper was awaiting me and there was sufficient in the house for breakfast in the morning, I certainly had nothing for dinner the next day. Somehow or other, there was at once a stoppage in the flow of joy in my heart. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove the poor man, telling him that it was wrong to have allowed matters to get into such a state as he described, and that he ought to have applied to the relieving officer. His answer was that he had done so and was told to come at 11 o'clock the next morning, but he feared that his wife might not live through the night. Ah, oh, thought I, if only I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of this half crown, how gladly would I give these poor people a shilling? But to part with a half crown was far from my thoughts. I little dreamed that the truth of the matter simply was that I could not trust God. I was not prepared to trust Him alone. My conductor led me into a court down which I followed Him with some degree of nervousness. I had been there before and at my last visit I had been roughed up. Up a miserable flight of stairs to a wretched room he led me, and oh, what a pitiful sight there presented itself. Four or five children stood about, their stunken cheeks and temples telling me the story of slow starvation, and lying on the wretched pallet was a poor, exhausted mother with a tiny infant, 36 hours old, moaning rather than crying at her side. Ah, thought I, if I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of a half a crown, how gladly should they have one and sixpence of it? But still, a wretched unbelief prevented me from obeying the impulse to relieve their distress 
at the cost of all I possessed. It will scarcely seem strange that I was unable to say much to comfort these poor people. I needed comfort myself. I began to tell them, however, that they must not be downcast, that though their circumstances were very distressing, there was a kind and loving Father in Heaven, but something within me cried, You hypocrite! Telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in Heaven and not prepared yourself to trust Him without a half a crown, I nearly choked. How gladly would I have compromised with conscience if I had a florin and a sixpence. I would have given the florin thankfully and kept the rest. But I was not yet prepared to trust in God alone without the sixpence. To talk was impossible under these circumstances, yet strange to say, I thought I should have no difficulty in praying. Praying was a delightful occupation in those days. Time thus spent never seemed wearisome, and I knew no lack of words. I seemed to think that all I should have to do would be to kneel down and pray, and that relief would come to them and to myself together. You asked me to come and pray with your wife. I said to the man, let us pray. But no sooner had I opened my lips with, O Father, who art in heaven, than conscience said within, dare you mock God? Dare you kneel down and call Him Father with that half crown in your pocket? Such a time of conflict then came upon me as I had never experienced before. How I got through that form of prayer I know not, and whether the words uttered were connected or disconnected, Yet I rose from my knees in great distress of mind. The poor father turned to me and said, You see what a terrible state we are in, sir. If you can help us, for God's sake, do. At that moment, the word flashed into my mind, Give to him that asketh of thee. And in the word of a king, there is power. I put my hand into my pocket and slowly, drawing out the half crown, gave it to the man, telling him that it might seem a small matter for me to relieve them, seeing that I was comparatively well off, but in parting with that coin, I was giving him my all. But that what I had been trying to tell them was indeed true. God really was a father and might be trusted. And how the joy came back in full flood tied to my heart. I could say anything and feel it then, and the hindrance to blessing was gone. Gone, I trust, forever. Not only was the poor woman's life saved, but my life, as I fully realized, had been saved too. It might have been a wreck, would have been probably as a Christian life, had not grace at that time conquered, and the striving of God's Spirit been obeyed. And women, that's just a little illustration of what God is saying to us in this passage. Give it up, whatever it is, and trust it all to God. And in return, we get Christ and the supremacy of Him in full joy in our lives. God just wants to strip away all the insignificance. He's not saying you can't have things, but He's saying don't let those rival Christ. Let Christ be supreme. In Cornerstone Bible Church, God has been good to you. He has given you seven years of fruitful ministry, changed lives and global impact. But as you gaze into the glories of the supremacy of Christ, find there a God who is unfathomable. And may that simple truth cause us all to strive to know Him all the more since it will be a pursuit that will last forever.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, God, for Your grace and for Your mercy. We thank You, Lord, above all for Christ. We praise You, Lord, that He is Lord and Savior. That He is Lion and Lamb. Lord God, that He is all in all, above all things, God. That this world was made for Him. That He designed it for Himself. God, that all of life, Lord, is for the one purpose of glorifying You. Not only in this life, but God, also forever in eternity. God, I pray that You would take away those things in our lives that rival Christ. Father, I pray that we would not be bound by anything, Lord, other than a growing love and passion for Him. And I pray, Father, that in the years and in the generations to come, Father, that You would continue to use this body of believers, Lord, this dear group of saints. Father, that they would continue, Lord, to spread Your glory throughout, not only here in Southern California, but, Lord, also throughout the remotest parts of the world. God, may You be honored and may You be pleased, Father, for what You will do all for Your name's sake, we pray.